Well, good evening. Thank you all so much for coming. My name is Emily Duffy, and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center, I'm delighted to welcome you here this evening. And it's my pleasure to introduce a man who really needs no introduction, Michael Novak. Ambassador Novak was distinguished visiting professor at Ave Maria University in Florida. After holding for 32 years a chair in religion and public policy at the American Enterprise Institute, he was the 1994 recipient of the Templeton Prize and was on three occasions a U.S. ambassador under Ronald Reagan. Ambassador Novak has written numerous influential books on economics, philosophy, and theology. For his work, he has received many, many international awards. Tonight, Ambassador Novak will be speaking on his most recent book, Social Justice Isn't What You Think It Is. Please help me to welcome Ambassador Novak. I'm really glad to be back. This is kind of second home to me to come here, and I really enjoy it. I'm happy to see many of you whom I met before and happy to meet you all. I thought what I'd like to do tonight, to the extent I can, I apologize, I didn't get this done, um, is uh, do questions and answers. The last two nights, I decided to say a few remarks, but I keep forgetting. I'm a professor and I only have 50 minute thoughts. And before I knew it, I'd bored everybody to death. And uh, I just don't want to do that again. So I'll make a few opening remarks. Paul Adams, who's a retired emeritus uh, social worker from Great Britain. And it's not worker, but professor of social work. And um, uh, he retired down to Florida, which wise people do. And, uh, uh, get away from that northern cold. And um, uh, he, he had a chance to take a class with Catherine Pakalik and myself. And uh, Catherine's a Harvard PhD in economics, a former student of mine, though so many years ago. And it was a great joy to be teaching with her uh, on this occasion. And it was on so Catholic social thought with a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, emphasis on social justice. And Paul was very interested in that because he noticed, he, reading in my writing, he noticed that most of what the field of social work, which is a very anti-Christian field, and very secular field for the most part. I mean, they're a very great school of social work here at Catholic University is really a very good one, and one of the few religious um, bastions in social work. But he noticed that the best practices recommended after 50 years of social work, what works? Well, it, it doesn't work just to give things to people. Because when you leave, they're just where you, you came in. They haven't changed at all. You have to teach them how to be, how to see what's wrong and solve their own problems and how to join with others, form associations to make life better for themselves, take over their own, as Jack Kemp used to say, their own housing projects, and drive the drug dealers out. Take responsibility for that. And with all of you joining together, you got the power to do it. Can't count on the government to do it. Well, anyway, um, uh, so he th thought he saw that I was providing a theory for social justice, which is quite new and quite original. Yet it's exactly the one that was there in the beginning. So I'm not inventing something new. I'm uncovering the original motivation for the idea that Leo XIII had in 1891. And um, well, so he asked to see everything I'd ever written on social justice. Well, that was a mistake. <laughs> uh, and uh, there must have been at least 25 essays. And, discussions, question periods. So anyway, he started organizing. He said, would you give me permission to organize them? I'd love to publish them as a volume. And then he came back to me with the most disturbing message of all, that that wasn't going to work. There are too many repetitions, and they're going over the same ground to different audiences, and they're telling the same story 20 different times, and et cetera. And there were unanswered questions, taking for granted things and so on. So 
before I knew it, he had inveigled me into rewriting the whole darn thing. So much of what you have here in the book has been through at least 41 drafts. I mean, it's just constant revision. I show it to different people. They had different ideas. Okay, so I am really glad to have it published. I am really glad not to have to touch it again and ever. And, um, um, but that's how it came to be done. Without Paul, there wouldn't be this book. And without his conviction that, and we have very, he got very good commendations for the book from top people in the field of social work, University of California and elsewhere. Um, so it's, he seems to have been right on that front. Um, and nobody's ever done that before, relate social work to social justice theory, especially since a great many of the thinkers in the field are very secular. And, uh, and in any case, generally not Catholic. Um, so that's, that's one aspect of the book. Um, second, in developing a, you know, what is social justice? Uh, let me just ask you, you hear the term social justice, what do you think of? Social justice Catholics, the nuns on the bus. What made them social justice? I'm willing to take suggestions. Uh, giving to what is sincere. Pardon? Giving to someone what is sincere. Well, no, they don't measure it by his due. <laughs> they just going to give. And they want to give other people's money. I mean, it's a nice virtue to give of your own resources. a very good and beautiful thing. But to be giving people your grandchildren's money to make you feel more virtuous seems to me a little slimy. And that's, in effect, what we're doing. The money the state is spending on the poor and on other things is money we don't have. And they're spending down, we're spending down our grandchildren's money and resources, which I don't think is particularly virtuous at all. And. Um, Anyway, I've asked crowd in Slovakia and Poland and elsewhere, what do you think of social justice? And there are five or six standard replies. One of them is the Beatitudes. And I say, no, that can't quite be it, because Leo XIII was talking about a new virtue for new times, rerum novarum, or the new things, the great deepest revolution in Western history, social revolution taking place. People massively leaving the countryside fleeing to the cities, no longer working as families in the field 14 hours a day. Hard work, child labor. Um, but as a family, and being dispersed to cities where the housing is awful, where there's not a food supply for them off their own land, where there's, um, well, all the things that there are in cities. And, uh, and it, Leo XIII said, the Catholic faith has from the beginning been a faith for agricultural people, for agrarian people. Every story in the New Testament is about the farm. Uh, sheep and goats and wheat and tares and uh, um, the fig tree and, and on and on. Because that's what most people through most of human history has done, have done. We've been farmers. We tried to feed ourselves, first of all. And everything else welled up from that. And then something strange and new happened in the 19th century, really in 1776. Uh, he didn't identify it as this, but it's the case. The Patent and Copyright Act, which Lincoln called one of the six greatest steps in liberty in human history. Why? Because before that, wealth was land. And he had to have money to get land or win a battle or a naval victory and the queen had to reward you with 10,000 acres in Oxfordshire or something like that so you could live on it forever in perpetuity and build yourself a nice mansion and uh, so forth. Um, 
But now you didn't have to have money to become a brewer, you just have an idea. Lincoln himself took out two patents in his lifetime. He thought it was the greatest thing that you can make money from ideas, that you could create new wealth from ideas which, which make capital available to everybody. Human capital becomes the most important form of capital. The ability of people to see things that need to be done and then to figure out how to do them and how to do them practically and make them work. So seeing these new things happen and the whole basis of society underneath Christian faith, not just Catholic faith, but Christian faith, taken away suddenly, uh, he thought we need to turn in new directions. And then the second thing he spotted on the horizon, Leo XIII, by the way, he was elected pope at age 78 because the pope before him lived for the longest time since St. Peter, Pius IX. And they wanted to elect a pope who would have a short life <laughs> so they could get around to puttying the windows of the Vatican and, and doing all the housekeeping that had been, been neglected during 35 years. Uh, but he fooled them. He lived to be 104. And, uh, uh, and, and he wrote more encyclicals than anybody ever had until that point, and until John Paul too, more encyclicals. And really, really good stuff and deep stuff. Anyway, Leo saw a second thing happening was the rise of socialism and communism. And uh, he didn't live to see the rise of communism, really. The, the Soviet Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. But he saw it coming. And he saw that it was absorbing private property, the state, and therefore squeezing the rights of ordinary people. The very poor that socialism was supposed to be helped, he thought would be left in a worse position than they started in. He said socialism, really, he's the only intellectual at his time. John Stuart Mill and others are saying the future is socialism. We've seen the future, and it's socialism. Practically all the intellectuals are going pro-socialist. There are 10,000 books on the transition from capitalism to socialism. There isn't a one on the transition from socialism to capitalism. Uh, that's why I wrote The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism in just in time uh, for the falling of the wall. It became kind of a guidebook for people in <coughs> Eastern Europe and so on. Okay. Um, but Leo XIII saw that coming. And, um, and he thought, we need a counter to the massive state, which is absorbing private property and freedoms of every kind, ordering our lives in more and more detail. And it has to be a social movement. What can an individual do against this great power? And we have to, we need a new virtue that Christian peoples have never had to have before. The virtue of thinking about the social problems we face, the economic order, urban living, health care, garbage disposal, you name it. Um, rethink human life in all its social aspects and see what needs to be done and then organize to do it. Don't turn to the state, turn to one another. He, he didn't get around to naming this virtue. He, has it, he knew it had to be new. It had to be for a people in cre Christian body increasingly educated, increasingly democratic and free to direct its own destiny. But he didn't know whether to call it social charity or social justice, social love, because after all, the fundamental principle of Catholic social thought is caritas. It's the, Caritas is the name of the love that God has for himself, which is so powerful and so potent that it generates the Father and the, Holy, the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then generates the whole world. It's out of the abundance, the excess of his love, that God creates the whole universe and everything in it. And then it wants to make at least one creature in that world, male and female, um, 
his sons and daughters, his, his friends. Calls every human being into his friendship. Amazing thing. That God is not hostile, this God that brings the storms and the hurricanes and the rest, the diseases, is not fundamentally hostile to human beings. He fundamentally loves human beings and wants beauty and good and so forth to increase. That's the, that's the basic lunge of Catholic social thought. Social justice comes out of that. So he was tempted to call it social charity. Caritas is the word in Latin. By the way, there are nine different words for love in Greek and Latin. We only have the English word love. It causes a lot of confusion. Uh, you know, I'm living with young people for the first time at Ave Maria, and uh, I was in the seminary from the time I was 14 until I was 26, so I skipped the dating scene and the rest of it. And it is so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the broken hearts, <laughs> the dashed loves, the unrequited loves, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, so having given it up years ago, I get to see it now, and it's, it's very fun. Anyway, um, but, well, I don't want to go down that trail, but it is an interesting trail, the different kinds of love, the nine different kinds of love, and how they function in human life. Um, but caritas is the most important one, the source of them all. And uh, the beauty of the loves, as a number of thinkers have pointed out. And by the way, there's no literature of love as vast and as various as the Catholic intellectual tradition. Tremendous books. Uh, the Mind and Heart of Love, Martin Darcy's book. The Nature of Love, uh, von Hildebrand's book. And uh, hundreds of others. Um, not to mention the novels, the, one of the greatest being Christian Lovren's daughter, the Norwegian novel. No better book about a, about a woman's grow, young woman's growing up. Um, no better book about a young woman making the wrong decisions again and again and again, but brave and tough and, and uh, faithful to what she started. It's an extraordinary book. Okay. Um, so I, I, I'm just trying to give you a little bit of the taste of how the concept of social justice arose. We face huge problems. People are not being paid enough. We well, can't just turn to the state for that. You have to organize one another for that. And therefore, his support of labor unions. Fed chiefly by the American bishops, Cardinal Gibbon of Baltimore particularly. Uh, the Europeans were going to condemn labor unions because they were practically all socialist. But not here in America, the Knights of Labor, which are among the biggest unions, were Catholic, Christian. And the other 13th went, to, I mean, uh, Gibbon went to uh, Gibbon's Halls right across the street at Catholic U from the Basilica. Um, um, and said, we've kept the working man. In America, the working man is still religious and faithful. And we can't give that up. And so the Pope listened and, and uh, came down on that side of the issue. Um, um, I think luckily for us, but anyway. Labor isn't now what it was, but what is. Um, so, uh, last of all, the originality is this. Is I've read books on social justice till I'm practically blind. I mean, your eyeballs are crawling across the floor for weariness. And um, you won't find a definition of social justice in them. They all avoid it as if everybody knows, and they take all kinds of things for granted. Yeah, I'd love to hear E.J. Dion from the Washington Post <laughs> expound on what it means when he says he's a social justice Catholic. I know he's for big government, but really, that can't be it. And in fact, that's the very reason that the other 13th looked in another direction. So what is it? And Paul and I are the first ones to really take a stab at it 
No, not a stab. We kill it. Uh, 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 in case you haven't noticed, I'm world famous for my humility. Uh, uh, um, but justice has always been a virtue in the Catholic tradition. And Friedrich Hayek, the Nobel Prize winner, wrote a book, a really powerful book called The Mirage of Social Justice. Everybody, at least all the progressives, say they're for social justice. But do you really identify virtue with the state? I mean, the most virtuous people you know, uh, politicians. Um, Aristotle said in politics, you must be satisfied with the tincture of virtue. It's about power and interest. And there is public service, and there are a lot of good things, but still, um, and therefore, if it's not linked to individuals, it isn't a virtue. A virtue is a habit, or a disposition, or a power, or an ability to do certain things. That's what a virtue is, to hold your temper, maybe, to one of them. Not everybody, George Washington didn't have that most of his life. He worked really hard at it and became known as one of the most even-headed men in America. But it was sheer work for his redhead. Sheer work for him to control his temper, you know. <laughs> um, uh, so social justice is a virtue and it adheres in individuals. It's either learned, mastered, or maybe just gifted. Some people are gifted with great virtues in many different spheres. Some children are calm and quiet and orderly and peaceable from birth. I haven't met one yet, but <laughs> I'm told. Uh, and uh, uh, but most of us has to work, have to work at a whole range of virtues, too be able to command our lives the way we know we ought to. Um, but it's a particular kind of virtue. The most important thing to notice, if it isn't a, a, a disposition of individuals, it isn't a virtue. It isn't a state program, it isn't a state of affairs. It's a virtue. Living in human beings, mastered by them, learned by them. Uh, but it's a special virtue. It's a social virtue. And it's social in two senses. It teaches people the art of association. That is, it teaches people how to cooperate with others, to form together to move common purposes. It, that, by the way, that was the substance of American life from the very beginning. I'll come back to that. But the first way in which social justice is social is it makes it shows individuals how to become social animals political animals how to be active in the public square public sphere how to get things done with other people how to motivate other people how to look for other leaders and get behind them um, um, so it's, it's a virtue that leads people to be social animals and political animals. Second, it's a, it's a virtue that leads people to do things that promote the common good, the, the goods outside the family. It's not a species of familism where you do everything for your own family. That's good, but it's not the whole social world. And countries that only have familism end up in deep, deep problems. Families don't trust other people, and they look for favors, you know, anyway. Um, so it's a virtue of individuals with two social aspects. It shows people how to live and function and succeed as social animals, political animals. And why do they do this? They do this to improve the neighborhood, or the village, or the town, or the nation or internationally, the Red Cross, or 
Boy Scouts, there are hundreds, thousands of organizations put together by individuals, by strong and brave. And by the way, it's nonpartisan. You don't get a leftist party unless people have certain ideas and start organizing and become activists. Uh, the left practices social justice too. They don't recognize that as social justice. But that's what it is. It's a nonpartisan concept. Will you please ask questions? Because I'm doing the same thing I did before. <laughs> I so is another way of thinking about it that it is um, manifested in civil society? Yeah. Th that's why Václav Havel and others in Central Europe <coughs> came out of communism. They called their party the Civil Society Project the Civil Society Party. Because they'd had it with the state. They knew all about the way the state works. They didn't like it. But how do you create a social alternative to it? And that's all those institutions that are between the individual and the state, which is where most of us live most of our lives. We don't live our lives only in the state. We do some things in the army or whatever, the state, or public service. The major part of social life is in civil society. The organizations, the mediating structures that prevent the individual from being a mere individual. Join the individual to others and create tissue that you can. The first law of democracy, Tokyo wrote, is the law of the habit of association. And he pointed out that's the distinctive American habit. We wouldn't have survived without it. My wife Karen's from, from Iowa, and uh, her family was among, were among the first European settlers to reach the territory of Iowa before a plow had ever cut that wonderful soil. They were there. And uh, believe it or not, the ancestor's name was Charlie Brown. Well, <laughs> Charles Brown. But okay, you know, um, and uh, this is ir totally irrelevant, but I love it comic strip, Charlie Brown, strike one, strike two, strike three. Lucy said, that's all right, Charlie Brown. You win some, you lose some. Last panel, Charlie Brown says, that would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you have a question, I'll come around with the microphone. I'm not very well read on the topic, I'll admit this. And so you said something early this evening which struck me as I had never heard it before, where you said social work can be unchristian. And I'm, I'm curious how you, and you, but you said the school of social work at Catholic U is a very, at a very, a very good one. So I'm curious um, to explore that topic a little bit. Well, the, at least according to Paul, and he's worked his whole life in social work, um, the assumption of most people is that Atheism is the mode of speech. And we, we don't, we're not in the business of charity. They hate the idea of charity. We're in the business of justice. Um, and behind that lies the concept of equality, which as Leo XIII points out in some of the most beautiful writing he did, is an evil ideal. God is not an egalitarian. Uh, he promised Israel a land of milk and honey. He said nothing about oil. <laughs> Everybody else in the region got oil. They got milk and honey. I mean, even in this family, God is not an egalitarian. Every child in the family is different. They have different endurance levels, different levels of energy, different le levels of persistence, different talents. And that's good, at least from Leo XIII's view. The world wouldn't work and those people were all very different from one another. I mean, we need people who will be garbage men. We need people who will be toll keepers. We need people who will clean dishes in restaurants. And there are many people who are quite happy to have those jobs and do them very well. It's within the range of their comfort. And they don't want to work like one of their brothers for 15 or 16 hours a day. They want to work eight hours and be done with it. And if, if people weren't unequal, we, we just couldn't live. Um, okay, yeah. 
Okay, I'm not shy. I'll ask another question. Um, the topic du jour is the environment, I guess, with this Laudato Si and the Pope's new encyclical. I mean, would you phrase, and you know, there's a big CO, COP21 happening in France soon. Would you phrase inv the environmental degradation no, issue? No, I'm not even as, thinking of that. As ju a justice issue, though. I'm a, I am asking that because cause I do think, I mean, I'm, I'm just curious about your opinion because some people think environmental law has nothing to do with justice, but do you think that that sort of taking on the counter-capitalist interest is a justice issue in the environmental arena? Well, it's the opinion of some that it is, and that the cause of social ills, uh, climate, is, is human life. And that's unjust. And we have to correct that. I don't happen to buy that position. I think human beings have very little to do with the environmental order. and. Um, but you know, they're difference of opinion, and that's okay. Um, um, but that's not my main topic. Uh, my main topic is about the social justice, which lies behind your question. Do I think that the environmental issues are social issues? Well, I don't. I don't see quite that jump. It could be. It could be argued. Somebody could show it. Yeah. Be great, yeah. You mentioned uh, you mentioned earlier Cardinal Gibbons' work with uh, American workers. Yeah. And sh surely we see now. Uh, well, there are just studies about the decline in health amongst uh, um, people of moderate means, uh, workers in the U.S. And you can certainly see a decline in the, in the earning capability, the social structure, marriage, et cetera, that has crept up through into the middle class, as Charles Murray writes about. Yeah. Um, do you see any, uh, how, how we as a society can respond to that? How can we bring social justice to ensure that those at that level uh, ha can recover from what's been inflicted upon them by uh, the social mores of the time. Well, I wrote a book, not an autobiography, but a, a memoir called Writing from Left to Right, which is the natural way, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> our culture. Um, but when you're young, as a lot of people have said, if you're not a socialist, you're, don't have a heart. But when you watch the way the world works, uh, if you don't become a capitalist, you don't have a head. Uh, and by the way, capitalism means the system that comes from the head. It means the system built around invention and discovery. New products, new insulation, new uh, sidewall. Um, it's amazing if you're building a house how different it was from 20 years ago. The materials, the, you know, this is always changing. And those always create small fortunes. Things which weren't there before are newly created. And often they're not taking wealth from anybody else, they're creating a new value that nobody else provided. So it's an extraordinary system, but it's, it's, a, it's a system of the human mind, kaput, the head. Um, it's not markets. Markets are as old as Jerusalem. That's all Jerusalem was, was the market between three continents. Um, there was no progress from generation to generation. People <coughs> still rode in the same vehicles or mostly walked, as Jesus did. And um, there wasn't much upward mobility, etc., etc., etc. Capitalism is new, and it occurs, as Leo XIII was pointing out, really very recent times, the 18th, 19th centuries. Um, uh, I'm dropping the question you asked. Yeah. The question about the, uh, those uh, in society who are not so well off and the, the damage done to them. Uh, it's really making a mistake asking me a big question. You're in for a half hour, right? Uh, but um, I was very much a proponent of a war on poverty, and in the name of the family. 
I didn't realize in my 20s and 30s that 10 or 15 years afterwards, we'd have more breakup of the family than we ever did before. I didn't realize that crime would multiply by 600%. And I didn't realize that after years and years of giving for the poor, we'd still have poor people, almost as many as before. Not quite, cut by about a third, which is good. But if we had just, if you're a family of four in the United States and you have $20,000 worth of income, you're poor because you should have 24 as official figure, the way the government calculates it. Well, give that family $4,000, give them $6,000, give them $10,000, give them up to $30,000, get them out of poverty. If we did that, how much money would it cost? So how many poor people are there and how much money would it cost to get them all above the poverty line? It's a small fraction of what we're spending. I mean, if your aim is just to get people out of poverty, that's pretty easy. But you know darn well they're not going to change their habits. And they're going to be right where they were. So it's not only a financial problem. But we usually attend to it in financial ways. And it was misconceived. I mean, I, it was a, just a witticism. But there was a lot of truth in what Reagan said. We declared war on poverty. And poverty won. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's ridiculous. And if we were capable of inventing a social movement in the 60s, we're surely better able to invent a better one uh, for this period. And uh, we haven't. You know, the age of social invention has largely dried up. We've turned it over to the state. And you find again and again the states which are the most active are the most in debt, not necessarily the least, but less job creation. It's not as if we don't know how to create new jobs. We do. And that's, you do need to promote investment, new discoveries, new industries, new, you've got to do that. And look, some people are going to get rich. Well, some people can't stand that. They can't stand rich people. But they don't understand if they don't encourage new employers, they're not going to have new employees. I mean, it's an it's a odd mistake. We don't have enough workers, we don't have enough jobs. Punish job creators. Tax them more, regulate them more. It doesn't make any sense. But that's what we're doing. At the, uh, the kind of turn of the 20th century from the uh, 1800s, 1900s, there were a lot of fraternal lodges all across the US that kind of provided for the commanders. Do you think um, moving into the future we'll kind of see a reversion back to the way things were back then when there were a lot of kind of uh, Knights of Columbus, whether it be Catholic or not? Well, don't you think that's already happening around you? How many new organizations do you see? Being, are, are you in a university by chance? <coughs> well, let me just use that as an example because that's the habitat I live in. But it's incredible the number of organizations and committees there are on campus. I mean, the problem with being an American is you have to go to too many meetings. What the heck are we doing here tonight? Uh, and uh, uh, so there's lots of that happening. That's why I partly disagree with Putnam's book on bowling alone. There's a partial truth to it. But there are other things happening socially that are very active and very promising. Jim, you had a question? that you're leaving out of the discussion is this new reality in modern democracies uh, who, you know, the advent of wealth intention things to help the underprivileged is, is that this has become a tremendous political byproduct for the progressive movement. It's votes. It's, it's, a, it's a raw, pernicious purchase of votes, and it's perpetuated for, for it's expanded, it's enlarged for that reason. Mm -hmm. And there are many people that know that that doesn't work, that you're not gonna help those beneficiaries that way, but it's perpetuated by a, a reality that's important in a democracy. There's a powerful interest in not getting people out of poverty. 
keeping them poor and getting their votes and promising more. The powerful interest in that, that's true. It's one of the, you know, Leo XIII gave in very careful, very concrete, as a philosopher, he's very good, but he stays very close to reality, like pointing out that children in the same family don't have the same abilities or the same habits. Um, there's inequality running through everything. Well, anyway, he, he makes 13 such arguments about why socialism is evil, why concentration on the state is evil, why it's futile, first of all, why it's not going to work, why it's going to make things worse, and why it's evil, because it does, does all that. And people I know in Poland and Middle Europe, everywhere, were writing after the fall of the wild, look at Leo's analysis of communism before it existed. 1917 hadn't even happened in 1891. And he was spot on. Every sentence he wrote came out that way. And uh, so it's not as if we can't know these things. But, uh, you know, the old proverb, democracy is the terrible system, a wicked system. It just happens to work better than the others. <laughs> the others are all trying. So, but this is a weakness that it's difficult, difficult to come up with an antidote. It is for that. Well, it it is, and this is a twist that was born out of goodness. Right. People were going to do good and help, and a lot of good was done. But the problems are even more severe. And how do in the beginning, nobody analyzed democracy in terms of those weaknesses. And also in terms of debt. It's much easier to spend money for politicians, to, do, to look for favors to give to people. It's other people's money, after all, and, uh, and gain votes. So you're, in effect, buying votes uh, by doing good for people. Um, that's a terrible weakness, and we haven't quite solved how to overcome it. But look, I didn't think in 1980 that uh, um, Ronald Reagan would be elected president. And then when he was, I thought it's too early, too early for a conservative. But it's not conservative. It's too early for an economically progressive, inventive, discovering capitalist society to take off yet. There aren't enough people who get it to take off. We got a shot, but we're understaffed. If you, that, that, was, that was my view. But I was wrong. There's not so many things. Um, most of you are way too young to remember this, but I remember vividly because I didn't, you know, I was in the seminary and in theology and philosophy. I didn't pay much attention to tax rates and stuff like that. And in the 1980s, we had the best darn argument about economics in the history of the country, arguing about tax policy and its effects. And, and Reagan kept maintaining that if you cut tax rates, don't tax it so high a percentage, you'll get more activity and pull in more tax revenue. He didn't cut taxes if you look at revenue side. So he cut capital gains taxes, meaning, you know, this is before there were computers, before there were cell phones, before there were genetic medicine or any of this. He cut taxes from the 70, 80% range. <coughs> You'll remember the figures exactly, I don't. Uh, down to 25%. And everybody says it's gonna be a big disaster and instead, people who had money now had reason to invest. What's the point of investing if the government takes 70% of whatever you earn on it? It doesn't make sense. It's not economically smart. But if the government takes only 20%, well, they're stealing it, but what the heck? Uh, it's not that bad. And uh, they need it for various things. Okay, so um, um, immense pools of capital developed. People pulled, pulled the money out of municipal bonds and other tax-exempt investments and put them in IBM and, and all um, Silicon Valley, all these new companies. 
and we suddenly we got computers for everybody, and and then cell phones, and it's just gone on and on. Whole new industries. Before Reagan, most people in America, I mean the biggest corporations, were the auto companies. And after computers came out, you took a car to a garage and they hooked it up to one of these electronic devices and they tested 80 things at once or something like that. And they came back in with clean hands and uh, said, we figured out the problem. That'll be $340. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and they bring out a clip and they plug it in and by God, it's, it's better. Um, uh, Whereas before that, these guys had come out all full of grease and misery and dirty clothes and everything, and they'd say, yeah, we found the problem. It'll be $340. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it just moved the country so far forward. Now, for instance, every time you bought a car, it was registered by computer. They'd know when they had office which model you bought and what your preferences were and how many cars were moving that day. And they could take that information, put it right on the factory floor tomorrow, <coughs> and make more of this model and fewer of that model, and more of this color, and less, you know. The market started to be instantaneous and saved a lot of resources, a lot of overproducing, et cetera. So all I'm trying to say is, what seems like a silly policy, lowering tax rates, can have immensely creative results. And we put more Americans, more adult Americans were working in those years than ever before in American history, up in the 60% range. Way more than are working today. And people accused them of giving favors to the rich. Heck, the rich were paying more taxes than they ever had before and were happy about it. I mean, it's one of the great slates of hand in political history, I thought. But ideas matter. And in particular, if you want a growing economy, you have to favor new small businesses, new inventors, new discoverers. That's where the jobs are. 80% of the jobs in this country are created in small businesses, not in the big. The big corporations are generally shrinking. And one reason they're shrinking is they don't provide their own cafeteria services any longer. You don't work for General Motors, you work in the cafeteria. They hire an outside company to come and do that. They hire a security company. They hire a payroll company to come and take care of your payroll. So the big corporations are in effect becoming smaller and starting many small businesses in, the, in, the, in their way. It's an amazing transformation. And it all started because of tax policy. I mean, it doesn't, to a theologian, that doesn't make any sense. Well, you're talking about um, the Pope's perspective of more than 100 years ago. What are we Catholics to think about Pope Francis' Francis's perspective of capitalism and civil society? One thing I like about being Catholic is the popes are also darn different from <laughs> each other. I mean, they're all so ornery and different. You know, they're not cookie cut at all. We've, um, you know, a bunch of my evangelical friends, he say he's the most Christ-like man on the planet. And he's having an enormous effect on people. I, it just amazes me how much the image of Jesus Christ, as people see it in Francis, washing feet and caring for the poor and so forth like that, how much power it has. And after all, it just undercuts the liberal movement, if I can put it that way. Because the liberals love it. This is what they're talking about all the time. They can't reject it. And it goes against so many other things they believe. Anyway, it's wonderful. But he comes out, look, John Paul II came out of Poland. He never lived in a free society. He lived in one totalitarian system, then another. He never lived in a free economy. He lived in largely an agrarian economy, where they still had cavalry mounted on horses, not mechanized tanks. He didn't understand at first. If you read his first letter on labor, exerting he said, Labor is always superior to capital because it's always about persons. Capital is only things, money, factories, machinery. That's wrong. That's wrong. The most important economic factor is intellect, human capital. Put it this way to you. If you have 
if in Bolivia, a relatively poor country up in the Andes, isolated, relatively, if they have a thousand new children born, they're or ten thousand, they're economists all around the world. Oh, that's bad news. More mouths to feed. But that's not right. Every one of these children has the capacity to invent and create much more wealth in their lifetime than they're ever going to consume. That's the principle of human progress. And give them a system which allows them to invent and discover and produce, and they'll create much more wealth than ever before. It's working all around the world. It keeps working. China and India, look how they've mushroomed over the last 30 years. OK, yeah. We have time for one last question. Hey, my record is nine hours. <laughs> uh, during the uh, 2012 election, Mitt Romney uh, famously said that there was 47% of the country that would never vote for him because of their dependence on government programs. My question to you is, what happens when that 47% becomes the 51%? Well, suppose he didn't get the percentages right. Uh, I don't have the number at my, at my fingertips, but there is a number of the number of Americans who just would never consider voting for the Republican Party for various reasons. Historical, the play made to certain groups of people by the Democratic Party. And so the, elect, the electoral field is already rather constricted. Uh, how do you get another 20% of the people even consider voting for It's odd to me, well, it's not completely odd, but that blacks who used to be wall-to-wall -wall Republican, after all, it was the Republican Party who argued with freeing the slaves. It's the Republican Party that made the civil rights movement work. When the Democratic Party uh, divided into the Dixiecrats who didn't want to change and the other Democrats. They didn't have a majority in the Democratic Party to bring about the civil rights revolution. It happened only because of Republicans. And I don't understand why that isn't widely perceived, that this is the party that frees the poor. And I don't understand why the Republicans don't jump behind ending sexual slavery. It's the new slavery. And it's horrific. And it's indefensible. But our polit political parties are not mounting a real effort to do something about it. They could. But we don't have the Wilberforce or whatever to lead the way on this. And uh, OK. Uh. Please join me in thanking Ambassador Novak. <laughs>